Good morning. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Craig LaHoulier, and he's been with us before, including last week when he was talking about his newest book, Straw Bale Gardening. And he's also the author of my favorite book of 2015, and that is Epic Tomatoes. And Craig knows tomatoes like nobody else that I know of. And Craig, today we're going to talk a little bit about the Dwarf Tomato Project. So tell us about that, please. I sure will, Daryl. And first of all, thank you. It's uh, it's great to be back so soon. Um, you know, talking to one of my best gardening buddies, and uh, this is just so much fun. And it, it's actually a special day. Um, we probably could have party hats on and, and glasses of champagne because we can celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the Dwarf Tomato Breeding Project. Um, it a project that's fairly unique and was hatched through a, an ad hoc set of discussions on a website called GardenWeb way back in 2005. Um, and it's where Petrina Nusk-Small, who lives in Australia, and I decided we share a love of projects, a love of collaborating, um, breeding interesting tomatoes, and assembling people who want to help us create new and useful varieties for gardeners. And here we are 10 years later, 60 varieties sitting in seed catalogs, kudos coming in from everywhere, from people who love them because it, those who really couldn't deal with the tangle of vines of the Sun Gold or Cherokee Purple now would have these nice, relatively well-behaved, three or four feet tall plants that they could plant in containers, five-gallon containers, and yet, harvest tomatoes of the size and flavor and quality and color interest of the greatest heirloom. So um, really a project worth celebrating and one that I think in the years going forward and these tomatoes become better known uh, will be quite uh, enduring in, in terms of varieties that will be in people's gardens for a long time. I think they will, too, because you have got some fantastic varieties in that collection. I've grown them since I first knew about them several years ago, and I've watched the collection grow. And last year, i got to say that Rosella Purple was the only survivor of the late blight. And mm -hmm. it had another, I think it was New Big Dwarf or something hanging over it, just dripping spores on it every time it rained. And it just hung in there, and the tomatoes were wonderful. Yeah, Rosella Purple was one of the ones that we found very early on in the project. It was one of our first set of releases, and uh, I'll, I'll just, any one of these 60 have stories associated with it, but since you mentioned Rosella Purple, if I talk about how we set about making that, it will give people a general idea on how this project works, and then we can take it from there, but Katrina... Okay had a variety that she loved called Stump of the World, which is a tall, indeterminate potato leaf variety that's very, very similar to Brandywine. Um, it's, it's an heirloom that also originated with Ben Quisenberry and has been passed around the Seed Savers Exchange for decades. And in setting apart to cross it with something, and, and what else, I'll take just a second here to say that many people know about indeterminate tomatoes, which are the tall, ever-growing ones that sucker every time a leaf stem comes out, and they can become just monstrous plants in terms of height and width. Mm -hmm. But they do fruit and grow, unless they're killed by disease or critters, they'll go right up to frost. 
And many people know about determinant varieties, which would be like Taxi or Sophie's Choice, Roma, or um, maybe Celebrity, which is a bit of a taller determinant. But these are varieties that, that commercial growers love because they have this unusual growth characteristic. They look just like an indeterminate until they hit about three or four feet tall. Then they all of their all of the branch ends end in flowers and clusters, and they set lots and lots and lots of fruit. They all ripen within a few weeks, and then the plants go kaput. Um, and they're very limit. The the gene for determinant wasn't even discovered until the 1920s, and the development of them has been mostly for commercial growers because they can be grown in fields on very short stakes, and then you can drive the machine down the rows and harvest all the tomatoes and then ripen them with ethylene gas. The determinate types have so many tomatoes in relation to the amount of foliage that their flavor potential, the intensity of the flavors, will never, never match that of an indeterminate, which has an awful lot of, le an awful lot of foliage, lots of photosynthesis. This third type, dwarf, many, if not most gardeners, don't even know about it. And that's because very, very few of them have ever existed. Now, interestingly, one of the very first named varieties in the 1850s was a variety that came from France called Delay, D-E-L-A-Y-E, named after the Chateau Delay, where it emerged as a mutation. And it's described as having a thick, stout central stem growing about three feet tall and yet ever-bearing, you know, occasionally putting fruit out until frost. The catalogs made a big deal out of it, but the tomatoes were not of that greater quality. And over the next 10 or 20 years, only a few additional, the so-called dwarf varieties emerged. Uh, New Big Dwarf, Golden Dwarf Champion, Dwarf Champion, and Dwarf Stone. So flash forward to Katrina looking for a dwarf to cross with her stump of the world, and she found one called Budai, B-U-D-A-I, Torp, T-O-R-P-E, and is thought to be a Bulgarian tomato, little red short plant, three feet tall, not very flavorful, but it provided the dwarf genes. So there's a red times a pink. One of the first varieties that Petrina selected and sent to me to play with, she called Rosella Crimson because it was this bush, bushy dwarf tomato with pink fruit so I grew some of her Rosella Crimson and out popped a purple tomato, which I named Rosella Purple. So what, and it was delicious. So what this exhibits is we see surprises all the time in this project because recessive genes that are hidden in some of these tomatoes that never express themselves because all, it's usually the dominant genes that show will pop out. And we've gotten... From a line that will give us oranges, we've gotten purples. With, with uh, the Rosella purple line, a red times a pink should never have given us a purple tomato, but it did. And we worked, we, we gathered a group of eventually hundreds of people around the world together to work on this project, not just Rosella purple, but many, many others. And then after we get to the 8th, ninth, and 10th generation, and it seems to be stable, we give it a name and we give it to a seed company. And from that little comment you made, Darrell, about your love of Rosella Purple, that gives people an idea of not only the complexity, but the fun and some of the mysteries that we get to experience as we're breeding these new dwarf tomatoes.
That must be just fascinating. I know that I've always been surprised if I grow something, you know, maybe something that the late Chuck Wyatt sent me or something that I had saved seed for, and every now and then you get something, whoa, it's totally different, it's so much fun. But I've never taken them, you know, out that many generations to stabilize them. Now, you mentioned eight or nine generations. Is that typical? That is typical. Um, and there is some controversy around here uh, in, just in the gardening world now because there are some breeding projects that uh, are interesting and the projects are deciding to distribute early generation, very unstable seed uh, for, for gardeners to play with and then let them name them and share them. But those projects are not really controlled the same way as our dwarf project is. And the reason that we want our project to only release varieties that are stable is due to my um, longtime association with the Seed Savers Exchange and understanding the whole principle behind handing down and saving seed. Uh, most of the heirlooms, well, all of the heirlooms that we grow and love should essentially be stable through years of growing out. And some of those are dozens of generations because they've been handed down for 100 years or more. And what that ensures is that if you get, for example, Lillian's yellow and you plant the seed, you should get Lillian's yellow again. That tomato should be pretty much the same as it was when Lillian Bruce first got it from her son 80 or 100 years ago. When we distribute varieties that are early on in stabilizing, how do we know what we have? So I'll cross variety A times B and then send seed out, and people start getting things that look like C, D, E, F, G, H. When all of those are planted, they will get continuing variation, maybe A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H prime. But what do you call these? And when they start getting, when they start finding themselves in seed banks and in seed collections, they may or may not have names, but their names based on something that is not yet reproducible. So that's a lot of sentence to say, I worry about further confusing the state of variety names and heirloom tomatoes and which are heirlooms and which are recent. So we pledged that we're not going to add to that confusion. When we put a tomato out from our project, when people grow rosella purple and save seed, they will get a rosella purple the next year. If they grow a kangaroo par green, they'll get a kangaroo par green. We'd like, we've added 60 varieties out there, and we'd like that to stay at 60 varieties, not 60 plus 60 because every time somebody grows them out, they get something different, and then they get something different when they grow those out. You can see how this can just become a tangle of confusion oh, going sure. forward. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And I thank you so much for that, you and Petrina and the rest of the folks that are working so hard to do this, because I remember back when heirlooms tomatoes started getting popular, and the same thing would be turning up under several different names, or you'd yeah. get something in it that you had grown years before, lost the seed for, and wanted to grow it again, and you order it, and it's something entirely different. And it was so very, very frustrating. Yeah, um, I mean, if you take just the tomato brandy wine, which was quite popular, we're at the point now where no one can truly say with 100% surety that they can trace the origin of all of the different brandy wines. And you've got brandy wine, black brandy wine. Brandy wine should be a pink, but you've also got red brandy wine and yellow brandy wine. And it can just drive you crazy if, 
going through old seed catalogs, and it's the, it will never be solved because the people who were originally involved in naming some of these varieties aren't around anymore, and the seed that they used isn't around anymore. So all of I, I call myself kind of a tomato sleuth or a tomato historian, and the fun almost has to be in the search because you realize that there will be frustration along the line. You you will it's like doing genealogy. You will hit a point where there's no true answer anymore. And so all you can do is best speculate where these things may have come from. Wow. You know, I remember that when we first talked, you mentioned getting seed catalogs, saving or, or sleuthing out old seed catalogs and asking people if they have them in their old attic or something like that. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to t- take a little break, but I really would like to talk about that. And I'd like sure. you to mention, you mentioned Ben Quisenberry, and I, I don't think a lot of people know his name, but he was responsible for some really tasty tomatoes that are out there. We'll have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back talking more about the Dwarf Tomato Project and other heirloom, and heirloom tomatoes right after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today I'm talking to Craig LaHoulier, the author of Epic Tomatoes and Strawbale Gardens and one of the project originators of the Dwarf Tomato Project. And we're talking about the history of tomatoes and the history of the Dwarf Tomato Project. So welcome back, Craig. Thank you. So now, where would we like right to be- go next? Well, there's so many places Right to go. before the break, <laughs> you had mentioned Ben Quisenberry. And yes. that he was the person that had that distributed Stump of the World, which is a very nice tomato that I don't think very many people know about. That's true. As well um, as Brandywine. Yeah. He, he was a unique fellow. Um, I first read about Ben when I was reading through this wonderful book that the Seed Savers Exchange put out in 1985. It's actually called The Seed Savers Exchange, The First Ten Years. They have an interview with Ben Quisenberry um, typed out in it, and apparently the tape exists, and I would love to listen to it someday. But even in his mid-90s, he was an active seedsman that would collect and grow wonderful, unique varieties. So in a way, when you think that the heirloom craze pretty much began in the mid-'70s and really got going in the mid-'80s, Ben was one of the people that fueled it, 
he had a tomato in his collection that he got from the Suddeth family that they called Brandywine that took on almost legendary status amongst early seed savers because of the quality of big potato leaf plant, wonderful flavor. Ben also had varieties like Gold Medal, Big Ben, Stump of the World. He uh, was one of the first that grew Mortgage Lifter, which is a variety that originated out of West Virginia. So he's one of the true honorary characters that sit at the foundation of this continuing hobby called heirloom vegetable growing. And he is probably one of the main tomato men that really should be honored in, in terms of keeping and maintaining and ensuring the sharing of varieties so that they would not go extinct, which is what was happening at the time when the seed sayers exchanged formed. We were, we were losing vegetable varieties like crazy in the rush to the latest, greatest hybrid. I remember that. Thank you for telling our listeners about Ben Quisenberry, because it's a name that people don't know, but he was just, as you said, he was the foundation. He was the rock upon which yep. a lot of this was, was started. And I am so grateful that he was able to get sort of a strain of brandy wine out there, because that is, I don't grow any other brandy wine variety other than that yeah, because yeah. of the flavor. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the dwarf, the start of the Dwarf Tomato Project. Yeah. And one of the things that I don't think our listeners know either is you did mention the, the straight, strong stem of the, the dwarf that was used in, in some of the early crosses. Yeah. People, these, everybody, the foliage on these plants is great, and the stems are like tree trunks. They really are. Now, is that true in all of them, or do you get a few wispy dwarfs? Well, the central stem is, so first of all, how I think of dwarfs is as indeterminate varieties that grow vertically at about half the rate. So if you think at the end of your growing season, a Cherokee purple will be, if you stake it, it would be about eight feet tall. A Rosella Mm -hmm. purple should top out at around four feet tall. So that means that the foliage to fruit ratio is in a good, in a good, healthy ratio for flavor development, which is why the dwarfs, like the indeterminates, can, some of the varieties can develop just superb flavors. They consistently fruit uh, up until frost. So I do, and some people want to split hairs, and there are dwarfs that behave a little bit more as determinants and dwarfs that behave a little bit more as indeterminants. But for the novice and the amateur gardener, I don't see that as much of a concern because the height and spread of all are pretty much the same. What is common to all dwarfs, and it's part of the genetics, is that the foliage, as you allude to, it, the word is rugose, R-U-G-O-S-E, but it's a crinkly, almost dark, bluish green that makes the plants just incredibly attractive and healthy looking. And that rugose foliage can be regular leaf, the toothed margins, or potato leaf, the smooth margins. An interesting um, sidelight to the Dwarf Project is before we had any of our releases, before we got going, there was really only one Dwarf potato leaf available, and it was kind of a pathetic variety that must have been just a genetic mutation called Dwarf Recessive that I pulled out of the USDA seed collection, grew it, Uh, little pink, watery, seedy tomatoes that were pretty worthless. Our dwarf tomato project has actually managed, I'm doing a count here, two, three, four, we've got over a dozen 
dwarf potato leaf releases. And to me, the dwarf potato leaf varieties are clearly the most beautiful of all plants, um, just incredibly gorgeous. But they all have the strong central stem. What we do see with the heart-shaped varieties is they carry a little bit of that gene for droopier, wispier foliage, although not nearly at the level of the heart-shaped and paste-shaped uh, shaped indeterminate varieties. But what, what you're asking is, is interesting because we, in the project, are learning basic tomato genetics as we go on. Uh, I'm sure we could grab very scholarly books off the shelves and look at some of the attributes and find the genes and, and guess some of these things, but in a way we've chosen for the most part to play explorers and let the plants teach us what happens when you cross a red with a pink and uh, or a green with a white. And um, that creates the element of surprise in the garden, which is one of the things that makes this project so exciting, um, to go out and wait for the fruit to start ripening and be amazed that it's color X and, instead of color Y. So it's a teaching tool. Um, it's a, a, a tool to bring gardening to more people because the more different varieties that you have that really do well in containers and straw bales and raised beds, that just expands the possibilities of gardening far beyond those that typically thought I needed a big side yard to garden in. Now, well, I've got sun that hits my deck. I can put some great tomatoes there. So we, mm -hmm. we've covered about 10 things in that one sentence, uh, Daryl, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, I like them because, you know, I can't grovel around in the garden like I used to. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm growing in containers, and I'm just blown away by the small size of the containers that I can use for these dwarf yeah. tomatoes. I found that in my climate and, and where I have my garden in the driveway with all the full hot sun, well, hot afternoon sun on it, that um, the, the five-gallon pots dry out too fast. But anything right. bigger than that is fine. Yep. And I know you were growing in five-gallon um, fabric pots this year, weren't you? I was growing in five-gallon black plastic. And the reason, uh, and I've done five-gallon white fiber the reason that I can do that is because I'm retired from my day job, and that means I can go out and water them once or, in some cases, when it was really hot, twice a day. Um, the optimal way to grow dwarfs would probably be, if you're clever enough, to, to set up a drip system where you had mm -hmm. uh, transmitters or emitters going into each pot. That way you could titrate the flow of your water just perfectly to keep the plants hydrated um, you never really have to water, or worry about overwatering when you're growing in containers and you have holes in the bottom and you're using a nice fluffy soilless mix. Um, but you can underwater pot-grown tomatoes, and usually it will tell you that they're being underwatered, clearly by wilting, of course, but that also leads to blossom end rot on the fruit. So, it, you know, to, to learn how to grow dwarfs well means that you need it it's good to pick up a little bit of an expertise in effective container growing straw bale growing or some other technique but once you do that then you realize i can pretty much grow anything in containers after after i learn how to do this too so anything and there are I a lot of books out there now to help yeah, people do it too some great books but i want to come back to something that's important early on we talked about the generations 
And one of the one of the early clever or maybe serendipitous clever things that we did was the fact that Petrina's Australia, I'm here, we could assemble teams in different hemispheres, meant that to get to the F8 generation by passing seeds back and forth across the hemispheres, it would take us four calendar years to do it. That reduction of our development time to a stable dwarf helped us to get things out on the market quite quickly. Now, several years ago, we were told that they were because of increased efforts to control certain diseases that could pass from the U.S. into Australia or anywhere into Australia. It's an island nation, of course. There, were, there are some very strict controls now on allowing tomato seed in. So we've had to essentially unyoke the hemispheric link in our projects, but we had enough of a start so that each, each part, each of the hemispheres can continue on and what we're doing now to defeat the uh, growing season issue is quite a few of our volunteers are trying to squeeze two season in in the U.S. So we're replicating that same two generations a year, only we're trying to do it within our own separate hemispheres. Yet we're sharing the data certainly back and forth. And our you know our friends in Australia are as equally interested in what's going on as as the people here. So. You know what you what you need to do just is adapt to conditions as as they emerge and move forward. And we found ways to do that successfully. Now, the fact that you're trying to get squeeze two seasons in one um, in both hemispheres does that mean that you're going to be breeding or are breeding for short date or shorter uh, time lengths, early produ- production? You know, that, that's a great question. And what I've found, for example, here in Raleigh, I could, uh, I did some new crosses last year, and if I started early and I'm growing out in my driveway, I could get a crop, get a cross going, save seeds, plant those seeds, and I'm actually still ripening indoors green tomatoes from that late summer planting. So I could get two generations right in my driveway. But to answer your question, we've realized that our first focus was on color and flavor to make this interesting for gardeners, as many different colors as possible, essentially try to take the color palette of people's favorite heirlooms and replicate them as dwarfs, with, of course, flavor being number one. So some of the attributes that we've, we now know we need to tackle, as you say, let's get some shorter season um, dwarfs for people growing up north. Let's start working in some disease tolerance, which which is not as fun and not as easy because when you're working in when you're working in disease resistance and tolerance, you need larger populations. You need mm-hmm. to know the disease that you're looking at, and you need to guarantee that you're growing these selections in an area that has those diseases. So tricky stuff and I think you know there's a lots of really smart people getting paid a lot of money to do intense research to work disease resistance into tomatoes and we're pretty much an amateur volunteer group so we've eased into it but we've all, we'd also like to look at multiflora and there's some cherries like ildi and rose quartz that put out hundreds of blossoms on a cluster and we'd like to breed some of that heavy fruiting characteristic into some of our dwarfs and we're moving into cherries and pastes because our initial focus was on big, slicing, meaty sandwich tomatoes. But we'd like to put out some interesting sauce and paste tomatoes 
and and really we're well on the way to some really good dwarf growing cherry tomatoes as well so i just kind of draw out a big grid and then fill in what we've got and look at the gaps and then i start dreaming of crosses that i could make and little projects that we could create that would fill in some of the gaps and uh I'm a mad scientist, Daryl. What can I say? <laughs> I love it. We have to take another break right now, but we'll be back talking more gardening right after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today I'm talking to Craig LaHoulier, who is one of the original founders of the Dwarf Tomato Project. And, Craig, you mentioned that you're growing in, you've got growers in Australia. Where mm-hmm. else do you have growers? How many countries do you have? Good. Well, this is, this is a great topic for a 10th anniversary celebration. So we're going to hoist our imaginary glasses to the fact that we have had 270 people and counting involved in this project in the 10 years. And wow. some of them had been with us for all 10, and some have dipped in and out. Some have gone in in a big way and then gotten overwhelmed, and then all of a sudden they decide they want to jump back in. It, and we're getting new people all the time. So it's a project that's not for everyone. It's, it's best for people who like data, like to experiment, um, you know, like the unexpected, and, and have the time and the follow-through to really follow something through and report back pictures of data and get excited about it. But we, those 270 people are spread across 14 countries. So we have uh, certainly America, Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, Australia, England, South Africa, Indonesia, France, Germany, Italy, Bermuda, Belgium and Denmark, and we were very happy when Belgium chimed in last week because that moved us off of the unlucky 13 number, so we're glad we're (laughs) at 14. Um, If we can, maybe through this podcast or some other means, get people from South Dakota, Maine, or Wyoming, we will have used or employed or entertained volunteers from all 50 of the United States, and... um, the District of Columbia. So we are at 47 states right now, and we have 18 okay. people in Canada. So that's, I mean, that does really demonstrate that it is a worldwide project. It is certainly a countrywide project. 
But when you think of the population of the world, these are like tiny little seeds that have blown into these areas and and uh, doing work with us. And each one of those seeds will talk about this to their friends. And there's great potential for the interest to spread just from having seeded this throughout so many different places. Well, I am happy to help you throw seed around because I think the Dwarf Tomato Project is so important. And you're doing something else that hardly anybody else, well, hardly, well, very few people do these days. You're not a big corporation, and you're not patenting all of your seeds and keeping them secret so that nobody else can can, can do this and, and grow these. You're doing something entirely different, aren't you? Yeah, it, in a way, it's um, a demonstration of altruism. In a way, it's uh, the terminology that they use for software is often open source. And so I would like to think of this as the very first open source, worldwide, all amateur, all volunteer example of garden altruism in that we pool our interests and resources together to create something that will be of benefit to gardeners. And then once we succeed, we pat ourselves on the back and we get excited about the variety. And then I contact my friend, Bill Minky, who is a who's one of the main tomato dudes in the Seed Savers Exchange living out in Wisconsin, and he has generously agreed, once we have a variety stable, to grow out sufficient seed, typically two to 4,000 seed of a variety, sometimes more. And then uh, Petrina and I, uh, with a few other people, will look around and decide which really good seed companies that have been focusing on heirlooms, and maybe they're small and they could use the help and the uh, visibility, can we give this variety to? And we, we give them an information pack. We'll, we'll give them pictures and enough seeds to release and the, the story of the variety. And all we ask them to do is to tell the story on their website and then go forth and sell. And we've, over the years, uh, several companies have expressed interest. But at this point in time, uh, Victory Seeds, um, Heritage, um, I want to get the full name of this right because it's, it's the Heritage Seed Market, Victory Seeds, Tatiana's Tomato Base, and the Sample Seed Shop are the four companies that have really do- they've dove into this in the biggest way possible in that all four of those companies are making an effort to list all 60 of our released varieties. And in the past and continuing to go forward, uh, there is an interest from Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and Tomato Grower Supply and Sand Hill Preservation and a few other companies have dabbled. I think um, because they're bigger companies with more infrastructure, it takes a little longer to get <clears throat> to get seeds through the, the mechanism of, the, of those companies. The smaller companies can quickly turn things around, get their websites updated, package seeds quickly, and get them out there. Now, I think what this means is that, and, and I'm getting the news from all of these four companies that they're selling very, very well. And my intent with this is to do this the old-fashioned way, right? It's, it's make a great tomato, give it away, put it out to the court of public opinion. These, I think we could fairly call these tomorrow's heirlooms because if people are still growing Rosella purple and summertime green 50 or 100 years from now, we can probably call them heirlooms at then. But people's tastes and success with them will decide 
whether they become saved and shared, whether they become sold in catalog after catalog. So this is kind of the slow burn approach. It's not the big bang approach. Um, it's not using advertising. It's not screaming out a fad that everybody has to jump on the train. It is putting something out there that we know is a value and see if it catches on because of the intrinsic value and word of mouth. So kind of a different way to do things, don't you think? I think that is a very different way to do things. It, it's I, I can't remember when I've heard anything like that except when you introduced um, Cherokee Purple to the world. <laughs> <laughs> I love to give away great stuff. I know. One of my uh, <laughs> yes. But I do hope uh, I, I win know. the lottery. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the same way. I love to grow tomato plants and give them away, and I yeah. love when people come over um, and and I can introduce them to one of the dwarf tomatoes. And they, they just go, holy cow, what is that? You know, yeah, cause yeah. It, and, and they wonder how I'm fertilizing it or, or what magic potion I'm using. And I say, no, this is just specially bred as a really good tomato. And, well, and you know, I remember, Gail, I remember the first time I spoke at the Seed Savers Exchange and it was maybe six, seven years ago. And you know, it was quite an honor to, to give one of the keynote speeches at an organization that who's joining really changed my life. Um, you know, when you, when you have a hobby of gardening and then the heirloom bug catches you and you realize that the seat of that heirloom bug is sitting in Decorah and they ask you to come and, and give a talk. I'm not a botanist. I'm not a horticulturist. And I, and I kind of took a chance. My talk was on essentially um, tomorrow's heirlooms for the most part. You know, we talked about the Dwarf Project a little bit in its infancy and uh, the things like Cherokee Green and Cherokee Chocolate. And I, and I wondered how it would go down because you're sitting at the seat of heirlooms. Many of these varieties have been around for 100 years or more. And I'm daring to talk about varieties that will become heirlooms in maybe 50 or 100 years. And people seem to really enjoy it. And I think one of the reasons that one of the things that creates the link is we're actually, for the most part, using family heirlooms to create these new dwarf varieties that will then become tomorrow's heirlooms. So Cherokee purple is being used in some of these crosses. So even though, you know, a particular variety with Cherokee purple in it is only five or ten years old, the the genetic material in that still goes back over a hundred years. And uh, it's kind of neat to think that we're we're just carrying on the history of these heirlooms by using them in crosses and making new heirlooms because they'll be stable as well and people will be able to save seeds and carry them on. So, uh, you know, you can just look at this heirloom hobby and consider different facets of it and different ways to keep it fresh and interesting. And as I've said before on your show many times, how do you prevent this from becoming just a fad that people are going to get excited about for a few years and then, you know, short attention span theater, they move on to something else? How do we make sure there's always people that are going to be growing the lilies, yellows, and the Cherokee purples? Let the fads dance on top, but we have a foundation of great varieties underneath that, that are always, always going to be there forever. Now, you mentioned that Cherokee purple is involved in quite a few of the crosses. Are they all carrying the wonderful Cherokee flavor, Cherokee purple flavor? They do for the most part, but one, but one of the interesting things, so for example, Cherokee Green is, a, um, is related to Cherokee Purple through just a color mutation, and it has all the same colors and flavors and attributes. When Petrina used Cherokee Green in a cross, 
some of the offspring were delicious and some of them were really pretty boring. And one of, that's one of the frustrations and things you learn about doing a breeding project where some traits are easy to see. You, you can see a shape that you're going for or a color. If you're breeding for stripes, you can see the stripes. Flavor is a bit like disease tolerance or some of these other more ethereal traits where you actually have to grow a plant out to maturity to see if it's going to be disease resistant. And lots of them, you have to grow a selection of a developing dwarf out. And you may have four or five tomatoes that look the same, but when you taste them, some of them are nines and some of them will be fives and sixes. You can't see the genes for flavor. And that's one of the challenges is we may think we have a variety stable, but we'll grow three or four of them, and we find that the color, the size, the shape, we've nailed it. But we have not yet nailed down the consistency of flavor. Um, and, that, that's and then tough. are you roguing out the bad, the ones that don't taste so hot? Yep, yep. What we do then is we ask people only say, we, so you wouldn't believe the amount of seed I have because I have seed samples from every selection that every volunteer has grown for 10 years which means I have wow. thousands of vials and packets of seed. And we tell people never mix. So let's say they're growing a variety to stabilize and they have 10 plants. We ask them to keep seeds from all 10 of those plants separate. And then we can go back and say plant A had the best flavor. We'll use that to carry on plants B, C, D, E, F, G. Maybe if we grew some of those out, we'd find that flavor. But as a first port of call, those are lower on the priority list. So I, I have got enough seeds for decades and decades and decades worth of further <laughs> projects. But we have to – sometimes you have to be tough and you have to draw the line and say, you know, this one's done. This is as good as this is going to get for now. Let's get it out there. You know, you can't – what is it? You can't let the uh, good be the enemy of the perfect or, or vice versa. But you don't want to prevent getting a great variety out there because it's not yet super great. It may be great enough for public consumption. I'm not a particularly decisive person, as uh, my wife Susan would tell you for sure. <laughs> I've had to make more decisions on this dwarf project than I've probably had to make in my whole life, and I've actually become a little comfortable with that. But often I'm thinking that I'm disappointing a volunteer by not choosing their selection or their variety. Um, so I feel like I'm applying a little tough love in the project every now and then. <laughs> Well, I would like to know what you find are your best tasting of the dwarf tomatoes when we come back from this little break, because I, I know that we had talked about some of the older ones, and you'd given us the list, and, and of course that's on our Facebook page, of the ones that you like, and you talk about them in, in your book, Epic Tomatoes, but you've got a whole bunch of new ones that just came out this year, so yep. right at, we'll come back right after this break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This week I'm talking to Craig LaHoulier, and we were talking about how his crosses, the crosses that the Dwarf Tomato Project are doing, are crosses made with heirlooms and with something that will keep it dwarf. And you said you had vials, you had, had every cross that was ever done in seeds. And I noticed on your website, Craig, that you have... Um, you have a lot of, in a lot of the, on your dwarf tomato breeding page, you have the, the vial numbers listed. Yeah, it's, it's a uh, huge numbers. Yeah, I, I have two methods of, of uh, numbering my seed. So when I'm saving seed, it just gets a number with the year and then just start with the number one. So for tomatoes last year, I had 15-1 through, I think I made it to 15-140. And then in terms of no, the seeds that people send me or that I purchase, I just started with number one back in 1986. And I think I'm up to number 5,560 <laughs> right now. And then I just write, I have an Excel spreadsheet with that number, uh, the name of the tomato, any description. And the hardest thing it is is to make sure that you transcribe all of the information. So I have an Excel spreadsheet that's a garden log, and I often forget to transcribe the observations during the year into my seed collection Excel spreadsheet. So I have to actually look back and forth. It's, it, it just becomes a data management nightmare. But I figured, you know, what the heck. Um, what I need to do is write this project up um, as a true book and tell the story and, and tell the story of some of those 270 people and some of the drama and, uh, you know, any, any publisher out there who thinks this would make a great story send me an email because that's where I'd like to go next before before oh, I forget all this information. <laughs> I would certainly like to see it in in print because I can yeah. see somebody 100 years ago doing what you did, going yeah. through old, old seed catalogs right, to right. find out how these crosses were done and who did sure. them and things like that. And I yeah. love that on your website you have um, the, the names of the contributors, too. Yep. So that's so important. We have the, we're going to have yeah. the history, and people get a kick out of it. You know, knowing that there are some people who have been part of maybe five or ten or fifteen of the new varieties, and that's something they can literally tell their kids about someday. You know, you you thought mom or dad just puttered around in the garden, but look, I I helped you create a tomato, and there it is. Here's my name in a seed catalog. So it's a uh, that's just a little bit of a a gift, and you know, I've got I've got a donate link on the Dwarf Project page of my website, and many, many times over the last four or five, six years, somebody will go and they'll, they'll just drop a little something in there. So it's, um, it, the world kind of works the right way, you know, given enough time that's, and given enough cool. people. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, I imagine that just your postage costs alone are, are huge. Um, it, yeah, I guess it gets up there. I, I, anything that's kind of associated with, with the hobby and my passion, I almost don't think about it, which is probably something I, I should think about, but um, uh, it, it's almost like gardening has given so much to me um, just in terms of my mental well-being. Well, I guess that's to be debated or argued. Um, it's, it's, it's <laughs> All gardeners are a, a, little a little touched. A little touched. But, yeah, and, you know, one of the things we said, we've said I've got, we've, we're up to 60 releases now, and uh, some favorites have started emerging. So if your listeners wanted to hear a few that 
I would that uh, they should be pointed towards for uniqueness or flavor. We could uh, touch upon some of those if you sure, like. Sure. Yeah. Let's get everybody go go grab yourself a pencil and a piece <laughs> of paper. If you miss it, um, I will of course be putting this up on our Facebook page. But I know that not everybody does Facebook, and then of course the link will be when this is archived, which is usually the follow the week following broadcast. Um, you can go back and you can download the podcast and and listen to it again. But for those of you that have a pencil handy, let's get to it because we have the ones that you like that that before this year. But you got yeah. a, how many did you say that you put out this year? There seemed to be a bunch of them. I think we added another 24 to our, so we're up to 60. We had 36. I know last year I grew all of our 36 releases in bales. I know we're up to 60. So uh, my little ability to do math there means we've we've made 24 more available. And I, I think, as you said, sometimes some of the first ones you do, um, you have a soft spot for. So I will always go back and grow Dwarf Mr. Snow, Dwarf Sweet Sue, Rosella Purple, Summertime Green. Um, they, the flavor quality of those were just spectacular. And I think having Stump of the World and Green Giant as two of the parents in a lot of those crosses, the incredible flavor quality of those parents did come through. But if more recent releases, we've got good news for people who want to grow um, – you know, like a tie-dye T-shirt in their garden, some of our wild striped varieties. And uh, this year, looking for Tennessee Suited or Adelaide Festival or Fred's Tie-Dye will give these gorgeous 8-ounce purple tomatoes, the color Cherokee purple, except they've got vertical, jagged green and gold stripes on them. And the interior color has that really deep blood-red crimson of the black varieties. Flavor is outstanding. Wow. Um, for anyone who loves brandy wine but realizes that that monster plant can often be hard to control and sometimes it doesn't bear well, we used it. Well, actually, one of our um, collaborators, Vince, in California, crossed brandy wine with Cherokee Purple and created one of oh. his selections. It's called Tasty Wine, and it is wonderful. It is essentially a three- to four-foot-tall potato leaf, stocky dwarf with eight- to ten-ounce pink fruit that have the delicious flavor of brandy wine on it. So, Wow. Tasty yeah, wine how did you get two giant tomatoes like those two and get a dwarf, dwarf plant out of it? Was that a bat cross, or how did they oh, do that? Let me, think about, let me think about that. I have to think back to the cross. Uh, oh, sorry. Dwarf Wild Fred was the partner for Brandywine, and in Dwarf Wild Fred was used the black tomato, the Cherokee purple. So it's what often to do that, to work in some of the heirlooms, what you do is now that we have crosses given. So think about when Katrina started the project, we only had maybe five dwarfs to work with. Now we have 36 dwarfs. Those can be breeding partners for your heirlooms and that's what we're starting to do now is crossing great flavored dwarfs with great flavored heirlooms which gives us a potential for even larger fruit size and even better flavors and that's some of these that i'll be talking about now have come out of some of those later um later that later work um i do want to touch on the color orange because I know that in the indeterminate world i am often not impressed with orange tomatoes and I know a variety like Kellogg's Breakfast, Dr. Witch's Yellow, there's a lot of people that love them. It, they don't 
quite fit my particular flavor need, but we've <clears throat> created orange dwarfs. Uh, one's called Dwarf Orange Cream. Uh, one is called Dwarf Blazing Beauty. And there's another called Loxton Lass, which are just orange, bright orange juice orange, good size, and absolutely delicious flavor because they've got a little bit more of the tartness uh, worked in, whereas I find some of the big orange heirloom beef steaks are almost too sweet, candy sweet, not enough of mm-hmm. that uh, tongue-tingling acidity to them. And, you know, now we finally have the answer to the person who says, well, these colors are all nice, but I'm sorry, I want a red tomato. Um, <laughs> a lot of my seedling customers, I've been hearing that from, the, it's traditional. They grew up with red tomatoes. They like their tomatoes red. Mm-hmm. Now, red is the dominant color in tomatoes. And in our project, we found that the hardest varieties to stabilize are the ones where you're trying to express the dominant trait. So it's actually taken us a long time to find a great red that stays red and doesn't start throwing all these different colors. But we have one called Sweet Scarlet Dwarf that if I were to think about the flavors of our 60 releases, it would have to be in the top five. It, and it's about a 6 to 10 ounce, beautifully shaped, smooth red potato leaf foliage on a dwarf plant, and the flavor is just an absolute knockout. So. That's just a few highlights, oranges, stripes, and even a red of uh, some of our newer releases. That sounds like fun. Now, what what other, you said your top five. Which oh. are your, can, can we start from number 10 and work backwards? And, or? Oh. So, oh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so I'm going, to, I'm going to say of the releases that we've done in um, the last batch, I'm going to go from mm-hmm. 10 up to number one. So we'll put as uh, number 10. God, they're all so good. I'm going to say a tie. 10, 9, and 8 will be Tennessee Suited, Adelaide Festival, and Fred's Tie-Dye. They're all purple with green stripes with slight variations of flavor and fruit size, but they're, they're just beautiful and delicious. Number six, I'll mention a variety whose color we've actually never seen before. This is a color that first popped out in one of the crosses that Petrina made. We call it Uluru, U-L-U-R-U, okra, O-C-H-R-E. And it is an orange tomato with green overtones, essentially an orange version of a Cherokee purple or a Cherokee chocolate where you're keeping some of the chlorophyll. So it's the first of the orange black tomatoes. And it, the color is just a complete mystery. Now, if you dare cut into it and eat it, you'll find an absolutely delicious tomato. Um, number five, I would put one that is the color of Cherokee chocolate. It's a brown tomato with green and gold stripes called Chocolate Lightning. Um, mm-hmm. A unique color, a unique flavor, just delicious. And then uh, number four, I'll have to put that tasty wine that I described. It's that large pink tomato. Uh, number three, I'm going to put that orange cream. Now, dwarf orange cream is another unusual color, and it is a pale, almost a, it's a pale persimmon orange that's much brighter in color um, than the deeper oranges. And then um, numbers one and two, I'm going to have to call blazing beauty and golden gypsy. I'm going to call it a tie. One of them is a deep orange. The other one is a bright yellow. I like a tart tomato that has a fullness of flavor, 
and these two tomatoes just blow your palate off um, with intensity. Um, so there's there's kind of a, t- a top ten list of our latest 24 or so that people can look for. And uh, those four seed companies I mentioned early on, um, Tatiana's, Heritage, Victory, and Sample Seed Shop, people should be able to find all of those in most, if not all, of those companies. But act quick because that first release didn't have all that many seeds, and once they're gone, um, they'll be on a waiting list until the four companies get a chance to regrow them for next year's crop. You can bet I'm going to be on Victory Seeds' website right as soon as we get off of the phone. Yeah. And, and don't forget, and don't I, forget I was just your amazed by. <laughs> don't forget I, your seedling in Raleigh. <laughs> well, well, yes, there's there's that too. But there's just kind of this transportation problem, yeah. you know. You're up yeah. in Raleigh, and I'm I'm near Atlanta, and and that that gets tough. But we'll see we'll see who we know, mutual friends or something that could maybe get some plants down there, but. I was just really impressed last year. I had never even heard of Victory Seeds. I don't think. Well, maybe once or twice. But so I ordered them on your recommend, ordered from them mm. on your recommendation last year, and it was just great. Okay, Craig, we are just about to the end of the show. Tell people um, where they can find your website. Sure. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. I can be found at www.craiglehulier.com. C r a i g l e h o u l l i e r dot com. And that's a redesigned website. If you used to go to nctomatoman.com, you'll be asked to be redirected. Um, pretty much the website focuses on my regular blog, um, a big description of the project, uh, my writing, the books, and events where I'm going to be this year. So right now I'm, I'm just getting ready for my first couple of, of uh, talks and seminars. And, uh, you know, if people hear me on this show and come to see me talk make sure you come up and say hello introduce yourself and you know we'll we'll become gardening friends but looking to meeting a lot of a lot more great gardeners this year like i did last year it was a really fun year wonderful i also noticed at the bottom of your um dwarf tomato breeding page you have a subscription thing so people can can get information about that well thank you again so much for being with us again i I just had such a good time and we just don't have enough time to get through everything so again we're going to have to do it again but that's all the time we have for this week thank you for listening to america's homegrown veggie show and we'll see you next week This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.